welcome to Time Travelling Team, the weekly podcast where we review every story of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Trisha. And I'm Paddy. Today we explore the final story of Season 2, The Time Meddler. We will be talking about the characters and giving our thoughts on the story as a whole. We'd also love to hear your thoughts on this story, so to join in on the discussion, you can check us out at Time Team, that's T-I-M-E-T-E-A-M-P, on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, or you can email us at timetravellingteamp at teamproductions.com. Now though, over to Paddy for our story recap. Righto, episode one, The Watcher. Vicky is wandering around the TARDIS as the Doctor works on the console. The presence of Ian and Barbara is sorely missed by both of them. Vicky consoles him with the fact that one day they might be able to land in their time and discuss their old adventures together. She changes the subject by talking about the places she hopes the ship will take them to. She confirms with the Doctor that she stands by her decision to stay with him as there is nothing for her to return to in her own time. Suddenly they hear noises coming from within the TARDIS living quarters and Vicky thinks it's maybe a Dalek. They prepare themselves for a fight but are shocked to see Stephen emerge from the doorway and then collapse to the floor. Meanwhile the TARDIS lands on a coastline surrounded by cliffs. Its arrival is observed by a monk who doesn't seem too phased by the materialisation of the time machine and instead ponders what its arrival could mean. Back inside the TARDIS, Stephen is amazed by his surroundings, but is still too weak to move around much. The Doctor tells him to rest until he gets his strength back, but insists that he stop referring to him as Doc. After the Doctor leaves, Stephen and Vicky discuss his arrival at the TARDIS, which he assumed was a delirious hallucination, but Vicky explains to him the nature of the ship. He still doesn't believe it, and so the Doctor and Vicky decide to prove it to him, and the Doctor announces that they have actually landed on Earth. At a hut near the coastline, a man arrives and asks a woman tending a fire if Woolnut is inside. She says that he is, and Woolnut emerges from inside the tent. The man tells him about the arrival of the TARDIS, and they both set off to reach it before the tide covers it. The travellers emerge from the ship, and Vicky finds an old horned helmet, which the doctor states is roughly from the 10th or 11th century Viking England. A fresh-faced and freshly dressed Stephen still doesn't believe him, and says it could just as well be part of a costume. He is further supported in his belief that the Doctor can't say for certain where the TARDIS has actually brought them. As Stephen questions him about the design of the ship, they are observed by the monk from earlier. The Doctor suggests that they walk down the beach until they come to an area where they can walk up to the cliffs, but Stephen suggests it would be quicker to climb up. The Doctor, growing frustrated with Stephen, says he will carry on alone and after he has reached the top he will call the others once he has determined if it is safe. However, Stephen has other ideas and says that there is a safe route that they can climb up. Left with no other choice, Vicky follows on after him, reminding him again of her fear of heights. After they leave, the monk emerges from his hiding spot and investigates the exterior of the TARDIS. Something about it pleases him, but his happiness soon vanishes when he goes to check something on his wrist, only to notice it is gone. He leaves the scene and makes his way to an old dilapidated monastery, which is suddenly filled with the sound of chanting after he enters it. The doctor comes across the hut and begins to look around. Suddenly, a stick is placed against his throat by an unseen assailant. It is revealed to be the woman from earlier. She apologises for her treatment of him due to the local mistrust of strangers and offers him some refreshment from his long walk. He asks her about the frequency of the Viking raids in the area and after making an incorrect guess as to the king at the time, realises that they have arrived in the autumn of 1066, shortly before the landmark battles of Stamford Bridge and Hastings. He laments the absence of Barbara due to the sequence of events about to unfurl. Through his time at the hut, the night has been filled with the echo of chanting from the monastery. Suddenly, there is a lull in the chanting which sounds suspiciously like a tape player beginning to lose its power. He asks about the monks and the woman tells him that they only recently arrived and confirms that only one of them has ever been seen. 
He thanks her for her hospitality and makes his way up towards the monastery. Meanwhile, Walnut has led to the cliffs overlooking the Tardis, but it has been covered by the high tide and they assume it to be destroyed. In the woods, Stephen and Vicky are lost and taking a rest when they hear someone walking through the woods near them. Vicky says they should wait for the person to pass them by so they can follow on after him to see whether it is safe or not, and gives out to Stephen when he almost ignores her. The man comes through the clearing behind them and stops to inspect something on the ground, which the others can't quite make out. Stephen calls out to the man, who tries to run away thinking he is being apprehended. Stephen tackles him and, despite Vicky's protestations, tries to wrestle the man into submission. The man, however, gets the upper hand, punching Stephen in the face before fleeing off into the night. Vicky goes to check on Stephen, who smugly shows after her what he found on the ground, a wristwatch. The doctor arrives at the monastery and initially finds it locked, but the monk secretly lets him in so he can look around. He searches the monastery and locates the sort of the chanting, an old gramophone connected to an amplifier. He chuckles to himself as he turns it off, but his laughter is cut short when a cage drops down around him, trapping him. The monk appears and begins to laugh maniacally as the doctor looks on furiously. Episode 2 The Meddling Monk The monk is preparing a meal for the doctor using modern cooking utensils and serves it up on a fine china platter. However, the doctor proves to be a less than gracious guest as he throws the tea back in the monk's face, causing him to storm off. After he leaves, the doctor demands to be let out. In the woods, Vicky thinks she hears someone prowling around them and calls out for Stephen. He emerges from the trees, saying that he had gone foraging for breakfast. He is still extremely sceptical of the Doctor and Vicky's claims that they have travelled back in time, but they both go silent when they hear noise from within the woods. Suddenly, Woolnot and his companion, and the man who Stephen assaulted earlier, appear and apprehend the travellers, and decide to take them to the village. Back at the monastery, the monk is outside, looking over some scrolls when he is disturbed by the woman from the hut, and another woman from the village. They are bringing food and supplies for him and his fellow monks, and he thanks them for their kindness, but says he needs to get back to his meditations. After they leave, he makes his way to the cliffs and looks out over the sea using a pair of binoculars. After a while, he sees an approaching Viking longship and delightedly proclaims, At last. Vicky and Stephen are brought to Woolnut's hut, and Stephen is slowly starting to believe that they have travelled back in time to Saxon England. Woolnut and his colleague, whose name is Eldred, are arguing over what to do with the travellers. Woolnut says that he believes that they are simple travellers and is inclined to let them go, but Eldred insists that they are Viking spies and should be treated as such. As the argument grows more and more heated, the woman, whose name is Edith and is Woolnut's wife, returns and lends support to Vicky and Stephen by asking if they are looking for the doctor. She tells the others of her encounter with him, and despite Eldred's protests, Woolnut decides to let them go. He tells Edith to take Vicky and prepare some supplies for their trip. She tells Vicky the doctor has gone to the monastery. She and Stephen thank Woolnut and Edith for their hospitality and then leave, with the suspicious Eldred looking on. Back at the cliffs, the Vikings have arrived and their leader instructs one of his lieutenants, named Sven, to take their comrades, Ulf and Gunnar, and scout the surrounding area for supplies. He tells them to be as stealthy as possible, as they are the vanguard for the invasion force of Harald Hardrada, and if they are caught they will be no longer have the element of surprise. Vicky and Stephen arrive at the monastery and are greeted by the monk. The monk waxes poetic in his answers to their questions, which frustrates Stephen, who is looking for a simple yes or no as to whether he has seen the doctor. He seems a bit taken aback when Vicky asks him if the other monks would have seen him, but says he will go inside and inquire. Stephen voices his scepticism of the monk's story, and tells Vicky to trust him when he acts out a plan he is thinking of. The monk returns and says that there has been no sign of the doctor, and Stephen asks him to keep a lookout for him, and asks the monk if he remembers the description that they gave him. The monk describes the doctor perfectly, not realising that he has fallen for Stephen's trap. 
After he goes back inside, Vicky voices her suspicion of the ease of the ruse and says that maybe they were the ones who have in fact been trapped. Stephen says that there's only one way to get a definitive answer and that is to break into the monastery once it gets dark. At the hut, Edith thinks she hears something outside and goes to investigate. Suddenly, she is attacked by Sven's scout party and is dragged back towards the house. Later, Woolnut and Eldred return to the hut and find a catatonic Edith lying on the ground. Eldred accuses Vicky and Stephen of being behind it, but Woolnut tells him to gather the men from the village. He tends to Edith, and when he asks her who attacked her, she stutters out that it was the Vikings. Eldred returns with the men and they set off after the scouting party. They eventually catch up to them and a fight breaks out. The poorly armed villagers are no match for the trio of heavily armed Vikings though, and nearly all of them are killed except for Woolnut and a wounded Eldred. Sven and Ulf flee after Gunnar is killed, and Woolnut takes Eldred back to the monastery. Vicky and Stephen break into the monastery and come across the gramophone setup. As they progress further into the monastery, they do not realise that they are being observed by the monk. However, his spying is disturbed by the sound of knocking at the front door. He opens it to see Woolnut, seeking aid for Eldred. Hiding his annoyance, he lets them inside. Vicky and Stephen come across the cell holding the doctor and can make out his figure lying down on the bed. However, once they get inside, they discover that it is a pile of furs under a blanket and the doctor is nowhere to be seen. Episode 3, A Battle of Wits Vicky and Stephen are wondering where the doctor could be. Vicky states that the only explanation for his disappearance must be a secret passageway somewhere, citing to the sceptical Stephen that a lot of old castles and monasteries had them. After looking through the cell, Vicky comes across a section of loose stone and Stephen pulls it open, revealing a tunnel. Not too long after they leave, the monk enters the cell and searches it in a state of confused frustration for any sign of the doctor. He is forced to stop his search though when Woolnut calls for his assistance for, with Eldred. Meanwhile, the doctor has arrived back at the hut and is informed about Vicky and Stephen's location by a recovering Edith. He says that he should make his way back to the monastery and thanks her for allowing his frequent visits. She tells him that he isn't the only person to visit her that evening and informs him of the Vikings' presence in the area and the party that Woolnut led after them. The doctor accidentally lets slip about the invasion fleet and Edith says that it must be why King Harold Goodwinson is forming an army to the south instead of the popular theory that it is formed to take on the threat of William of Normandy. He tells her that he found out about the fleet during his travels but ponders aloud that the monk must be planning to do something with it. He tells Edith not to worry about the Vikings as Harold will defeat them and he thanks her again as he makes his way back to the monastery, talking to himself about the Battle of Hastings that is soon to follow. Vicky and Stephen emerge from the tunnel and they begin to call out for the doctor. Stephen says that he wants to go back to the monastery to investigate it as he wants to find out more about the monk. Vicky says that they should find the doctor first though as all three of them can investigate together. In the monastery the monk tends to the wounded Eldred by giving him penicillin. He tells Woolnut to dispose of his weapons outside as they are in a house of God and once he is gone the monk questions Eldred about the Vikings. He tells him that the invasion fleet is no more than two or three days away and the monk seems happy at this news as it means his plan is still on schedule. Woolnut returns and says that Eldred will need to stay at the monastery as he is still too weak to move. The monk tries to get him to take Eldred away as he has much to do but Woolnut promises that he and Edith will help out, forcing the monk to reluctantly agree lest he cast suspicion on himself. Sven and Ulf make their way through the forest trying to avoid the locals. Ulf says that they should make their way back to the rest of the, the vanguard but Sven insists on trying to complete their objective labelling Ulf a coward. Ulf implores him to see reason and that the invasion will succeed without them. He says that they can tell their leader that they were captured but managed to escape, while in actuality they can seek shelter in the monastery and take the monks hostage once inside. 
In the monastery, the monk is consulting a chart outlining his plan. It appears that he intends to destroy the Viking fleet using an atomic cannon, keeping Harold's army fresh so that it will be able to defeat William of Normandy and thereby changing the course of history. He suddenly hears impatient knocking and again vents his frustration at being disturbed as he goes to see who is there. He opens the door to find no one there, but the knocking repeats again after he closes it. He goes outside this time to investigate and is apprehended by the doctor, who tricks him into believing that he has a gun pressed against his back, when in actuality it is just his walking stick. He tells him to go back inside and bring him to his chambers as he has some questions for the monk. Stephen and Vicky go to the back to the TARDIS only to discover it missing. Stephen suggests that maybe the doctor came back and moved it before the tide covered it. Vicky says that the only way to do that is to dematerialize, and if that was the case, it would mean the doctor would not be able to return to them, causing her to be overcome with sadness at the thought of being left behind. Stephen says that they should go back to the monastery, but as he leaves, he notices a cannon emplacement, and he ins- insists that it must have something to do with the monk. Back at the monastery, the monk has led the doctor around in circles, and the doctor calls him out on it. Suddenly, there is a knock on the door, and the monk says he will need to answer it. However, the doctor doesn't trust him not to try and request aid from whoever it is outside, and so insists he will answer it. The monk says that he is not suitably attired, and so the doctor instructs him to get him another monk's habit, but tells him that it needs to be the same as his, so as not to arouse suspicion. As they leave, the doctor tells the monk to ease off on the monkery. He opens the door, but is immediately apprehended by Sven and Ulf, whilst the monk slips away unnoticed. The two Vikings take the doctor back to his cell, and Ulf instructs Sven to guard it, while he goes to deliver their ultimatum to the rest of the monks. He searches through the rooms until he comes to the monk's chamber, where he is knocked out by the hiding monk. Meanwhile, the doctor opens the secret tunnel. Sven falls asleep, and when he wakes up, calls out for Ulf and goes to inspect the cell. He sees the secret tunnel open, but when he goes to take a look, the doctor emerges from his hiding spot behind the door and knocks him unconscious. Meanwhile, the monk goes to Woolnut's hut and requests his aid in constructing beacon fires along the cliff tops. He tells him that he's expecting some building materials from the, for the monastery, and they are arriving by sea. Woolnut agrees, but seems suspicious. Once the monk is gone, he asks Edith what the doctor told her about the Viking invasion fleet. The monk arrives back at the monastery and gloats to the bound Ulf about his plans for the fleet, but says he first needs to take care of him, Sven, and the doctor. Before they can say anything further, the doctor sneaks up on him with a sword and demands to know what his plans are. Vicky and Stephen make their way into the monastery through the secret tunnel. They enter the monk's chamber and come across an electrical cable running into a sarcophagus. They go to investigate and realise that they can actually look inside the sarcophagus through a doorway at the back. However, they find they can actually enter the sarcophagus due to its secret. It is a TARDIS. Episode 4. Checkmate. Vicky and Stephen look around the monk's TARDIS and investigate his collection of relics and antiquities from various periods in history. They also come across a cache of neutron bombs that are more likely the ammunition for the cannon emplacement they saw earlier. Vicky finds the monk's diary and reads some passages from it, detailing his interactions in in history, such as giving da Vinci the inspiration for his flying machines and depositing money in a bank and collecting the interest far into the future. The monk admits that the signal fires he is building are to lure the invasion fleet to where his cannons are so he can destroy them. The monk reminds him of the golden rule of time travel, which is non-interference, but the monk fobs it off saying that history can benefit from interference, citing his help in the creation of Stonehenge with anti-gravity technology. He now intends to change the course of world history by allowing King Harold to be victorious in the Battle of Hastings. The doctor refuses to allow him to continue and demands to be taken to his TARDIS. After they leave, Sven enters looking for Ulf, 
but does not notice Eldred observing him. He finds and releases Ulf, who says that he should kill the monks and take the treasure from the monastery before leaving. Eldred leaves the monastery and makes his way back to the village. The monk shows the doctor into his chambers and shows him his TARDIS. He mocks the doctor over the fact that his camouflage unit is broken, but the doctor ignores these jibes and demands to be taken into the TARDIS. Once inside, he reunites with Vicky and Stephen, who are looking at the monk's plans. He marvels at the monk's TARDIS, as it is a newer model than his, and calmly reassures Vicky and Stephen that their TARDIS is perfectly fine when they tell him about the tide coming in. He also confirms that the monk is one of his people, who has also decided to leave their home and has been meddling in the affairs of the universe for at least 50 years. The monk claims that his motives are purely altruistic, as he wishes to spare Europe the wars and strife that will follow after William's victory. Seeing that he is having no effect on the Doctor, he flees from the TARDIS, and the travellers give chase, but stop short when they see the monk proclaiming his loyalty to the cause of King Harald Hardrada to Sven and Ulf. At the village, Ulnut and Edith have called the people together to inform them of the impending arrival of the invasion fleet, and their suspicions that the monk is a secret Viking spy who intends to use the beacon fires to guide their ships to land. Eldred arrives and confirms their suspicions by reporting the presence of Sven and Ulf in the monastery. Back in the monastery, the monk convinces Sven and Ulf to take the creative neutron bombs down to the beach, telling them that they are mystical charms that will help guide their ships to safe harbour. In their cell, Vicky explains the nature of time to Sleven, saying that they are in a flux point and once the ships sink, the entire course of history will be rewritten, with those affected by it in the future being none the wiser. The doctor, meanwhile, is formulating a plan to escape and stop the monk. While this is happening, villagers assault the monastery, forcing the monk and his accomplices to flee, leaving the bombs behind them. Edith locates the travellers and frees them, telling them that Woolnut is leading the pursuit of the fugitives. She invites them to join her in the village, but the doctor tells her that he must first wrap up his business with the monk. The monk and the Vikings are fleeing from the mob, but they are slowly losing ground. The monk tells the others of a shortcut to the coast and tells them to take the lead. They set off down the path, but the monk sets off in a different direction. The Vikings double back after they encounter a dead end and realise too late that they have been betrayed as they find themselves surrounded by the villagers who take their revenge on the raiders. Back in the monastery, the doctor sabotages the monk's TARDIS by wrapping a length of string around a component in the console. He ushers the others outside and then pulls the component after them. He declines to tell them exactly what he has done and ushers them back to their own TARDIS, leaving a note behind for the monk. On the way back, the doctor officially welcomes Stephen aboard the TARDIS. The monk returns to the monastery and reads the note left from the doctor, which informs him that he has put a stop to his meddling and that one day in the future he might release him. The monk finds out what this means when he discovers that the doctor has removed the dimensional control from his TARDIS, shrinking its interior to be comparative to the size of the interior of the sarcophagus it is masquerading as. The monk repeatedly calls out for the doctor, but it is to no avail as the travellers have already dematerialized into the vortex. End of the story. So now that the story recap is finished, we're going to go over to the trivia section with Trish. So over to you, Trisha. Cool. Thank you very much. So, the time meddler. The writer for this story was Dennis Spooner. This is the third script we've seen from Dennis, the previous two being Reign of Terror and the Romans, so a bit of a historical slant for Dennis. He has one more credited story coming up, and that is the Daleks' master plan. The director for the story was Douglas Campfield. Again, this is a third outing, though maybe you could technically say a fourth for Dougie. 
We previously saw Dougie's work in Planet of the Giants and The Crusade. I say this is technically the fourth, as he did direct the Back on Earth montage of Ian and Barbara at the end of The Chase. We're going to have more episodes of Dougie's to discuss right up into Tom Baker's run, so we'll get to talk more about him in the future. Perfect. The air date for this story was the 3rd of July to the 24th of July, 1965. This is the first, but by no means the last, pseudo-historical story. Well, now what do we mean by pseudo-historical? We mean that, though it's set in the past, it includes science fiction elements. All the historical stories up to this point had our heroes exploring the past as it was, with no anachronistic involvement. There's a bit of a debate amongst fans about whether pure historical, so Marco Polo, the Crusade, the Romans, is better than pseudo-historical, like this one. But what we do see after this point is the number of pure historical stories drops considerably. Yeah. The story's historical setting has a particular relevance in 1965, as the 900th anniversary of the Battle of Hastings was only a year away. And this was a way for Doctor Who to recognise that fact. So Paddy, I have a question for you. Yes. Is it time and relative dimension in space? Or time and relative dimensions in space. I got like uh, no, this is a dangerous question to ask. <laughs> Very dangerous. Um, I've I've always thought that it was dimensions. Okay, so when Susan, yeah. who came up with the acronym to begin with, when Susan originally laid it out, she said time and relative dimension. In space. Hmm. The change to the plural dimensions in space was actually a flub by Maureen in this story. But it seems to be the one that's been adopted and kept right up until now. Personally, I think dimensions... It it makes sense in the sense that it reads better. Mm -hmm. But when you're talking about the ship's time and relative dimension in space... I don't know. I'm kind of on the fence, I think. Well, you know better than me do with your sciencey brain. <laughs> yeah, well, I like the original version. I think time and relative dimensions, because obviously you exist in multiple dimensions, not just one. I think that makes more sense. There was no next episode caption at the end of episode four. Instead, we got this really cool outro sequence with an extended version of the theme tune playing over images of our cast against the Starfield. Which is really, really cool, but it's different to what they did at the end of season one, which has had a standard story closing at the end of it. It looks like a kind of um, a prototype or at least kind of like a piloted version of the later Doctor Who intros where the Doctor's face would appear in the credits. Yeah, I actually I actually really liked it. I don't know if you remember that. I messaged you at the time going, yeah. what's this? Yeah. <laughs> when did this happen? Um, I actually really liked it. I think it would have been a nice way to sort of mark off the end of each season. Um, and it's kind of, I'm kind of sad they didn't do it at the end of season one because I would have liked to have had that sequence with Susan, Barbara and Ian. I'm trying to remember, at the end of season one, was there a next time or like next episode? Because... It it did end with them again going off into the vortex, but there was no kind of like... No, there was no next episode. There was no like title card for the next episode. There was nothing like that. 
Yeah. Um, which I imagine if you were a fan who had watched like all of season one and now you'd watched all of season two, it almost seems like this would have been the end, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, but it, it was an interesting choice at the time. I did like that sequence, though. I thought it was really cool. Some versions of this story, especially those distributed in the US during the 1980s, cut the sequence in the first episode where the Doctor and Vicky discover Steve and Heidi in the TARDIS. Which makes no fucking sense to me at all. Because <laughs> how do you... Ex- they left him on the planet from our perspective of the chase. Yeah. So how the hell do you explain him being there? <laughs> it's like... Um... Oh, it's like, you know, like like a mind parasite. I was here the whole time. What are you talking about, guys? Yeah, like the only thing I can think of is that in the novelization of the chase, hmm. we do see Ian, or we do Ian. You can tell where my heart is. <laughs> we do see Stephen finding the TARDIS and going inside because the way they explain it is that when the Doctor agrees that Barbara and Ian should take the Dalek ship. He's like, well, you're going to need money and your stuff. So they all go back to the TARDIS, pack up Barbara and Ian's stuff in a box, including her handbag and his wallet. (laughs) And then they go back to the Dalek timeship, leaving the door to the TARDIS unlocked. And so Stephen can go inside. So that's explained in the book. So I don't know if they just went off, like, the book version when they were distributing it. It's weird. It... It's bizarre. Anyway, holiday time again, this time for William Hartnell, as he was on holiday during the filming of episode two, hence why we don't see him. On to our cast. So, Edith might look a little bit familiar. She's played by Alethea Charlton. We previously saw her in the first Doctor Who story, An Unearthly Child, where she played the character of her, one of Paddy's least favourite characters to recap. Absolutely. Just on principle, I hate her. H-U-R, not H-E-R. <laughs> this is her last Doctor Who acting credit, and Alethea passed away in 1976. Woolnut was played by Michael Miller. This is Michael's only Doctor Who acting credit. His other acting credits include Breaking Point, The Three Musketeers, The Prisoners, Crossroads, and... We're on the scorecard with Zed Cars. Yes, we are. Michael passed away in 1987. Eldred, not to be confused with Eldrad, different character further down Mm. the line, is played by Peter Russell. This is Peter's, again, only Doctor Who acting credit. His other acting credits include Swizzlewick, Play for Today, The Bill, and... Zed Cars again. Zed Cars again. Peter passed away back in 2003. Ulf, It's played by Norman Hartley. This is the first of two appearances for Norman. He also appears in The Invasion. His other acting credits include Revenge of the Pink Panther, Blake Seven, Detective, Out of the Unknown, and Paul Temple. Norman passed away not so long ago, at the time that we're recording this, in February of 2020. Were you going to say something? Yeah, so because uh, we have a playlist of songs for my baby... Uh, one of the songs is from Tangled and you know it's like the villain's song of like I you know I have a dream and one of the villains his name is Ulf and his whole thing is like uh, he's a mime artist so every time I said the name Ulf in the recap all I could just think was Ulf is into mime (laughs) (laughs) Uh, 
it was it was a struggle to get through that recap. <laughs> so next we have Sven, who's played by David Anderson. This is the third Doctor Who acting appearance for David. He previously appeared in the Aztecs as an Aztec captain, and he was also credited as the Fighter Ranger. He was in the Crusade as Rainier de Marom. No idea if I've said that correctly. He also has several other uncredited appearances in the show through his work as a fighter ranger. His other acting credits include The Avengers, Softly Softly, the TV adaptation of The Prime of Miss Jean Brodie, The Wonderful World of Disney, Rockface and Taggart. Lastly, we have The Monk, who's played by Peter Butterworth. This is Peter's first appearance in Doctor Who. Peter was a member of the British Navy Air Arm in World War II and was in a German POW camp after his plane was shot down. Some people think he got the role of the monk due to his work in the Carry On films. We've talked previously about how the Carry On guys crossed over a little bit. And while he was in several Carry On films, they all came out after this episode. His other acting credits include How Do You View, Friends and Neighbours, The Magical World of Disney, Dad's Army and the previously mentioned Carry On films. Peter passed away in 1979. Uh, one thing that I always kind of find really fascinating is the is the amount the amount of actors that um, in that time period that they had military service in like World War Two or in Korea, and you know so, some of them like they were like you know in the the reserves or they were in the peacetime forces or something like that. But then like you've got guys like Peter who was in, you know he was shot down. Or even like in Star Trek, you know, with uh, James Doohan, who was uh, shot on the Normandy beach landings. So it's always kind of cool to hear stuff like that. One of the things that I noticed as well is that, like, you know, a lot of the actors in Classic Who, I'm sure it's the same in New Who, but a lot of the actors in Classic Who, um, a lot of the guest actors, they were older, do you know? Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. They weren't all, like, young 20-somethings. So military service would have definitely been in in their background. So lastly, we have Stephen, who's played by Peter Purvis. Did I do a good job of hiding the fact that Stephen was going to become a companion? I, I, don't, I don't think I did. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, it was like, oh, but like, there's, a, there's a, another role for him, another role for him. Yes, that is annoying American wanker. <laughs> no, sorry, that's, that's not it. He was a very sweet uh, American tourist. and It was actually kind of funny. Yeah. So Stephen has escaped and he is now part of the crew. So let's give us a bit of background on Peter. So Peter was born in 1939. He had originally planned to go into teaching, but instead began acting with the Barrow and Furness Rep Company. If you grew up in the UK in the late 60s, early 70s and were not a fan of Doctor Who, you may still recognise Peter as he is one of the longest running presenters on Blue Peter, presenting from 1967 to 1978. Anyone who's not familiar with Blue Peter, it is an after-school program that was usually on about 4pm, 5pm on weekdays. And it was a live show where the presenters would take people through arts and crafts. They'd talk about things going on in the world. It was like a kid's talk show type thing. It's still running now, by the way. Is it still going now? I think it is. Or was up until recently, anyway. 
not like for me like Blue Peter was always like on like your reeling in the ears or top you know you know 50 moments of TV and it's always with Shep the dog mm. it was also in the Sarah Jane Adventures it was after that much of his career was spent as a presenter though he did appear him as himself in EastEnders and The Office Peter has reprised the role of Stephen in Big Finish Productions and has also provided the voice of the first doctor in some stories Peter has said that he preferred the historical stories on the show, such as The Massacre of St. Bartholomew's Eve and The Mythmakers. Peter he has just, also worked... Sorry, go on. He, he just liked the fancy clothes, that's all. <laughs> Probably. Peter has also worked as a pantomime director and has directed over 30 pantos. Oh, no, he didn't. <laughs> oh, yes, he did. <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> When you set me up. <laughs> so another awesome round of trivia, Trish. Thank you very much. So how about now we we You're now welcome. move on to the main part of the show, which is the character discussion. So how about we start off with the man himself? The doctor. Yep. So I have a couple of notes on the Doctor for this one. So, first of all, I think the Doctor's sadness at everyone leaving him was very heartfelt at the beginning. Hmm. Perhaps it's more of William Hartnell shining through than the Doctor. But it's nice to see him admitting that he misses not just Ian and Barbara, but also Susan. And voicing his concern that Vicky would want to leave as well. Later in the story, we see him missing their presence when he comments it's a pity that Barbara isn't there with them. And I agree with you, Doctor, 110%. <laughs> but it's nice to see that sort of vulnerability in him. Do you know, that he's not just pick him up and drop him off and, you know, that he does have a heart. Yeah, and it's, again, it's... I, I, I suppose it's down to the fact that every writer that has appeared on the show so far has kept up that really good character development uh, across the board so that the Doctor has grown and like he's become a bit more human and obviously he's opening himself up to more emotions and we're now seeing like the, the utter sadness of seeing like your, your friends leave. Yeah, exactly. On the flip side though, mm-hmm. he did have f- some of the funniest lines he has ever come out with. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> for our listeners' benefit... I was laughing my ass off before the story even started because of the clip that was used on the DVD menu. And I messaged Paddy. I hadn't even hit play yet. And I messaged Paddy basically saying that I was laughing my ass off. And the line was, what do you think it is? A space helmet for a cow? <laughs> and I, referring to the Viking helmet, I don't know why I found it so funny, but I was literally lying on my couch laughing my ass off I couldn't even press play which meant that the clip was just playing on repeat but again it's down to William Hartnell like it's just that whole kind of bruff demeanor it's like what do you think it is a space helmet for a cow and it's just like that very matter of factly with absolutely deadpan seriousness it's fucking brilliant I loved it he had a few others as well Um, I particularly liked when he's pointing out things to Steve in the ship he's like this is a this, this is a this, that's the scanner, that's a chair with a panda on it, and I'm just like... 
these lines aren't even that funny but it's just the delivery it's fucking brilliant but it's it's very Marx Brothers esque like it's you know like that's a table and that's a door and I wish you'd use it like I want to be alone <laughs> and the last one that I wrote down was um, when they're talking about climbing up the cliff and Peter is like well, not Peter Stephen is like oh there's a pa- there's like a way that we can climb up there and the doctor just turns around and is like I'm not a mountain goat <laughs> I think I laugh more in like the first 10 minutes of the story than I have in ages. And even now, any one of those lines will just set me off. It's brilliant. Uh, well, so oh. It's one of those things. Look, let's get things straight. I don't like you and you don't like me. I like you. Okay, fine. I don't like you, but you like me. But maybe if you got to know me. Oh, just shut up. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um... <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be a difficult episode to record yeah <laughs> uh, so beyond funny lines I need to move on because otherwise I won't be able to get through this yeah Um, we do get to see that the doctor while acknowledging his age and the effect it has on him mm-hmm. so <laughs> he can't climb a, he can't climb a cliff he needs to go and find an easier way he can still hold his own. He can escape from prison. He can take out enemies. He can potentially kick people in inappropriate places. <laughs> and he can bluff his way through anything by pretending a stick is a gun. Um yeah, I think okay, like in ter- in terms of the in terms of the you know kick you know potentially kicking in inappropriate places. No, like he did. He snuck up behind Sven and kicked him in the dick from behind. So the doctor fights dirty, <laughs> um, but I thought that was brilliant. But again, like the whole thing with the sticky, you know, this is a gun. I was like, "Is this? Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very long gun." But no, oh. um, he's almost too clever in this story, though. He needs to start schooling what he says in front of the natives. Mm. Like, while it works to his benefit in the story as Edith uses the information to get the Saxons to attack the monastery, it could have seriously backfired. These are incredibly fucking paranoid people and you're just going out spouting about how, like, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, the Norman invasion or the Viking invasion. Oh, yeah, that happens here on this day and whatever. I'm like, dude, fucking... <laughs> it's very it's very haggard. I should not have said that. I should not have said that. <laughs> yeah, for someone... For a story about someone who's meddling with time... Shut your face. <laughs> Who's the real time meddler here? <laughs> oh, exactly. I have two more notes, one of which I, I, I'm going to leave to you to get to because you were the one who, who raised it to me in the beginning. But the other thing that I just have here is what does stranding the monk in 1066 actually accomplish? Like He clearly wants to interfere in the timeline, the monk does. And even without his target, he would be able to do so with the knowledge and technology he has to hand. Like, don't leave him with all of his anachronistic technology in 1066. I think it would have been better if the Doctor did something that the monk was stuck in the TARDIS or something. And it would also make sense with the note he left, which is, I will release you. Mm. I will release you from 1066. Time will release him from 1066 because it will move forward and it will become 1067. <laughs> that, that boggles my mind when we got to the end of the episode. Maybe in, like, as you kind of pointed out earlier on, in the novelization maybe the there's more sabotage done to the monks 
uh, equipment outside of the TARDIS. Maybe. Maybe. It just seemed like, I don't want him to meddle with time, so I will strand him here. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> what sort of weird fucking logic is that? <laughs> How much damage can one man do? <laughs> uh. And your last point? <laughs> god um my last point was and this is one that i know that you you have thoughts on as well and we'll probably discuss it more mm-hmm. when we're talking about edith and then in our overall as a whole um i didn't like the fact how he basically ignored the attack on edith like she is literally wiping the tears from her face and he's just prattling on about himself and his issues barbara would have been very disappointed in you doctor because you should be paying attention to the woman who's literally crying in front of you as opposed to just talking about yourself. Yeah, it's like this episode or this story, there there are some strange tonal shifts. And there there are like there's one like again when we discuss Edith uh, soon, it's like one which I would say is like one huge neon sign of a fucking, you know, plot discussion. Uh, it just kind of gets moved away or segued away and I did think it was kind of out of character like, if he had been like you know if Edith had explained everything to him and he had done oh yada 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 but before he left if he had turned back to see if she was alright and see what had happened then okay you know, it's the doctor he's he's scatterbrained and then he realises oh wait I should have talked to her first but th- there isn't any of that He and Again, it feels like a missed opportunity to have the educational component of the show. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. So, what what were your thoughts on the Doctor? I know I kind of rambled there for a little bit, but what were yours? To be fair, like, like I, um, you've kind of got a lot of my points there. Like, you know, he's snarky and sassiness, you know, with the space helmet for a cow. And now we must pause while Trisha laughs. Keep going. I'll edit out my laughing. Fine, keep going. If anyone's listening, if you need a toilet break, if you need to get a cup of tea, she's going to be laughing for a while. So it's you know, smoke if you got them. Shut up! I just keep going. All right. So um, yeah, there was that component of it. Uh, as I mentioned before, about you know the doctor fights dirty. Pull yourself together, woman. Uh, yeah. <laughs> It just like that. That thing kind of reminded me of like whenever it's it's the equivalent of the Indiana Jones guy with the sword doing all the fancy trickery. Indy shoots him. You've got the the Viking with his sword and his armor. The Doctor just kicks him in the dick from behind. It's just <laughs> down I go. Um, the one thing that I did like about this story uh, was that we get to see the Doctor interact with a member of his own race, mm. and. We, we get the impression that doctors are like as we've dis- discussed before like in previous uh, episodes we get the impression that the doctor is a bit of a renegade from his own people like he mm. is he's sort of like you know um, not a criminal but a more of like a kind of a social renegade and it's funny to see when we have the monk now who's deliberately breaking the laws that have been put down by their people in terms of traveling through time and space the doctor now has to kind of defend the status quo in that regards so I thought it was very um, I thought I thought it was interesting it's like look only I can fuck stuff up not you no one else just <laughs> me this is my thing 
It's called Doctor Who, not Monk Who. <laughs> In fairness, though, the Doctor's defense, I mean, if we go back to the Aztecs, you know, even though he does travel in time, hmm. you know, we've seen, you know, even going back to an earthly child as well, like he travels in time to learn, you hmm. know, he's an observer. He takes scientific readings and stuff like that. But he was the one who said you can't change history, not one single line. So I think at least this version of the doctor maybe isn't as much of a renegade as he thinks he is. Yeah. <laughs> I'm having I'm having a cup of coke after ten o'clock. Ooh, renegade. Um, so yeah, but that's pretty much all I had to say about uh, the doctor this week. Cool. Why don't we go on to the companions? So, so we have our continuing companion, mm-hmm. Vicky. So, what were your thoughts on Vicky? Um, I feel so, kind of sorry for her in this episode of Smallville because she's essentially relegated to the job of babysitter for the new guy. <laughs> but I, but then like I also feel sorry for her because he he is a bit of a handful, you know. Like he, it's, he is, yes. he is. But uh, there's like there's one or two moments where it's like he gives her this look, or sorry, she gives him this look where it's a case of chill out, rookie. Like you know, just <laughs> you got some stuff to learn, that type of stuff. And again, it just shows like that, despite her kind of fresh-faced childlike look she has a level of maturity beyond her years and i think maureen maureen o'hara maureen o'brien uh does a very good job of getting that across with the character definitely i i love how we see at the start just how like the doctor vicky is Mm. as in he's trying to have this very serious conversation with her about you know whether she'll want to leave him as well and she just gets so easily fucking distracted (laughs) he's like hey come on we're having a serious conversation here and that's such a doctor thing to do. She's so like him in so many ways. Also, I love how the two of them plan to attack a Dalek with a jacket and a shoe. <laughs> it's like... Seriously, the two no, no, because this is that's what the plan was to throw the jacket over the eye stock, blinding it, and then just jam the shoe like a giant doorstop underneath its uh, <laughs> like your know, floor runner. So it's like bollocks, I'm stuck. <laughs> yeah, the jacket at least somewhat made sense. I was like, Ricky, what are you planning to do with the shoe? <laughs> I can throw this pretty hard. Speaking of shoes, though, um, yeah. the shoe is on the other foot for Vicky in mm. this story. Like you said, she has to be like the babysitter. Yeah. And she has to be the voice of reason trying to rein Stephen in. And part of me is like, now you know how Ian and Barbara felt with you. Because mm. um, usually Vicky is the one to run off and want to seek adventure and stuff. And here she's trying to be the responsible one. The yeah. last thing that I, I noted as well is so... At the beginning of the story, we have like so that the very serious conversation the doctor is trying to have with her about like, oh, I didn't really ask you if you wanted to go home, you know. And she's saying that there isn't really much for her at home because her father's dead. Yeah. Um, but we do see some of her insecurities from the crusade coming back again in this story so not during that conversation during that conversation she's like no like i want to stay with you but later on when they think the tardis has left that the mm. doctor you know dematerialized the tardis in order to escape the tide yeah and vicky's like but if he did that he can never come back because he doesn't know how and we sort of see a bit of that insecurity that she had from the crusade 
where obviously she thought that the doctor would leave her there. Mm. We see a little bit of that coming back to her again. I think it's nice that there's still some level of vulnerability to the character because she is quite a young character who was orphaned not so long ago. Yeah. So it's nice to see just that little bit of complexity to her as we're going through. Yeah, like I suppose like it's one thing as well that um, what we've seen so far with the companions that they never really change who they are during their travels. Like they don't become like jaded, they don't become untrustworthy, they don't become this, that or the other. So it's nice to see that their basic traits are still shining through. Yeah, very much so. Any other comment on Vicky? No, that's pretty much it. Same. So mm. we'll go on to our new companion. Yeah. So Stephen. Yes, Stephen, not Ian. Stephen. <laughs> yeah, not Ian. Yeah. Oh, he's not Ian. No. <laughs> go on. What were your thoughts on Stephen? So I'll be a hundred percent honest. Uh, I found it very hard to like Stephen in this story, mm. and I, I don't know whether that was the way that it was written. Or if it was just maybe like a small bit of bitterness from, you know, one of my favorite companions of all time leaving. Um, but I think there was just like the way I've kind of described certain aspects of like the, what we've seen so far in Doctor Who is that it feels very much like an RPG. You know, uh, mm. like you keys of Marinus where they go off on like their little mini adventures before they finish the main quest and uh, so on and so forth. I would eat uh, with sorry with Stephen. Stephen kind of reminds me of like that guy who's like in the group is that's like you know don't worry guys I got this and he proceeds to fuck it up for the rest of the group. Oh my god! Flashbacks, flashbacks <laughs> to that campaign, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> don't equate Stephen with him. That's not fair. Yeah. I got this. Uh, um, but like it's a case of oh, would you just sit down and shut up and listen to the people that have that do this? I won't say for a living, but they do it as their day to day. But like I. He does like he. There are some things about Stephen that I like in this, in the sense of that he, he's he's very clever as well, you know. The sense of how, how they cut out the monk, it's like yeah. you know. Do you remember how, what I said to you? Do you remember the description I gave you? Oh yes, he looks like this. Perfect. I never gave you a description. Just like, uh, so he he, do, he does have that bit of um, cuteness to him in that regards, but again, I suppose it was just he's new to the whole scenario and that might be a thing coming along with other companions that they're new and we have to kind of go through the same cycle of they're unbelieving about what's going on they'd already pay attention to the rules they think they know better but again we'll just wait and see um so i'm not dead set against him but with just this particular story with some of the stuff that he did Especially with Vicky saying, no, let's stay here and uh, be quiet. And he just immediately gets up and goes, hey, you, and tackles a complete stranger. <laughs> <laughs> Leroy Jenkins. Um, just, yeah. <laughs> I'll turn it over to you now because otherwise I'll just be end up repeating myself and just eventually go, you fucking dumbass. <laughs> yeah, so we discussed a little bit in the trivia where, like, where the fuck was he hiding? And how did they miss him getting in? But since, you know, last time with the chase, I have read the book. So I know at least in the book of the chase how that was explained. Um, I had never watched this story before. So while I knew from general Doctor Who knowledge that Stephen would become a companion, 
I had no idea how. <laughs> I didn't know how that was going to work because I was like, are they going to go back to Mechanus? How does how does that work? So I am glad he survived and I'm very glad Hi-Fi survived. Yeah. Because I would have been devastated if the panda hadn't survived. Um, And actually, I kind of wish he hadn't shaved. I prefer Steven with a little bit of scruff. He looks a little bit too clean cut, I think, once he's shaved. The thing about Stephen, and you touched on it, is that he is such a sceptic. Like, it's a little bit crazy how much of a sceptic this man is. Like, he knew they were from another time when they met him, right? <laughs> I yeah. mean, when they met him in the chase, he knew they were from another time. Like, he knows he and Vicky are not from the same time. And clearly neither were Ian and Barbara. So how does he doubt it's a time machine? Like... Dude, it's a blue box that's internal <laughs> dimensions drastically exceed its external ones and it can travel through space. But the idea that it can also travel through time is what is just completely unbelievable to you to the point where you dub the TARDIS IDBI. I don't believe it. <laughs> um, one thing maybe like it, it might be due to his confinement. It was a case of, sure, you're from 1963, you're from 1963, you're from God knows when, and you're a weird old man. Yeah, sure, come on, thank God you're real. <laughs> yeah, maybe. But, like, he's giving Scully a run for her money in terms of the skeptic department, to be <laughs> honest. He also gives Vicky a run for her money. I kind of mentioned this in the section about Vicky in terms of the adventure-seeking department. Though, in fairness, after two years alone as a zoo exhibit... I don't think you can really blame him for wanting to get out and wanting to go and do things. Though he really needs to start trusting Vicky's judgment more. Mm. Like like you said, she's been doing this for longer. This is her day-to-day life. Trust the girl with experience. Um go on. I was just just thinking did did no, I I know I didn't, but do you think that it would have been conceived that he thought he was acting that way because he thought like oh like Vicky's a girl and I'm a guy type thing I don't think it was I didn't read it as Vicky's a girl and I'm a guy I would have read it more that Vicky's a child alright yeah because like, I, I definitely he's an adult. I definitely I, def, <laughs> I definitely didn't pick up on the first part I was wondering if maybe you picked up on it or if anyone no, that's I didn't listened get, I didn't get any sort of sexist vibe from it right. intentional or otherwise um, the the one bit that I would say is that like where you know he kind of treats her a little bit like a child is when he's like oh come on let's climb up the thing and she's like you know don't forget and he's like yeah yeah you have a thing with heights you'll be fine and he just sort of like brushes off this like terrifying fear of heights she has <laughs> bear in mind that like the last time he met her she plummeted into a <laughs> fucking rope like um but uh, yeah so I sort of saw that as a more of a sort of oh, come on child you know you'll be fine type yeah. thing rather than a, a girl boy thing um one thing I don't like about Stephen, or at least I didn't like it about him in this story, and we'll see if it carries over. Is and I will preface this by again, he was alone in a zoo for two years, right? Mm. But he is very quick to violence and very quick to anger for no fucking reason at all. Like you said, you know, he sees a guy with a watch and is immediately like, hey you, and then when the guy runs away because some rando is calling out to him in the forest, he goes and he fucking body slams him into the ground. It's like, <laughs> there was no need for that. I was like, uh, evidently, uh, was it like, not civil discourse, but polite conversation is a dead art on Mechanus. Yeah, so like, and like, it, 
it sort of crops up over, you know several times where he like he seems to be very quick to anger. I said maybe it's because he spent so much time alone, and you know we have to give him a little bit of credit for that. But it'll be interesting to see how that will play out over time because I don't like that. Mm. So that'll be interesting to see. So my like I have an overall thought here, which is that I think he's an interesting character. I'm looking forward to seeing how he develops over time. Hmm. For now, though, yeah, he is no Ian Chesterton. No, and I think maybe like after as the stories goes on, will will the aim of all the companions, I suppose, is to make them their own thing, and that we won't be comparing them into oh, you're just fulfilling the Ian role or you're just fulfilling the Barbara role or whatever the case may be. Um, so at the at the moment, in terms of the the young man of the group he he definitely has to find his own feet yeah and I, I do agree like we're not going to be comparing him to Ian in every story I think just because this is the first one after it's sort of a natural yeah comparison to make cool so shall we move on to our guest companions of the week yes so we have the Saxons uh, the most trusting and yet also mistrustful group I think I've ever seen on television. I like, I like the kind of ones like you know they invite you into your house, give you like a three course meal, but just give you fucking shifty eyes the entire time. Yeah, it's like they are the most trusting group of people, who are also the most mistrustful group of people, all at the same time. Yeah, that that was the one thing I I found kind of confusing is like you know like we're very was it oh. You're a stranger, but you're a traveler, so that seems to kind of balance it out. <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh, wait, aren't they, they technically the same thing? I don't know. I love how the leader, though, will not. I love how, like, when he brought Eldred, the monk, to mm-hmm. um, treat him, you know, the monk is clearly trying to get him to leave. And Eldred, or Wilmoth, is just like, hey, I'm going to leave Eldred here. Bye. And he just leaves. <laughs> Obviously, you know, that would be expected of a monastery at the time, but it's like, yeah. dude can't read social cues at all. Like, this monk does not want you to stay, dude. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to leave him here. Be back in a couple of days. Bye. <laughs> can't you read between the lines? I can't read. It's a fucking... Oh, God. It's like Drax. <laughs> well, yeah, I like... Um... So I suppose the three main Saxons that we see are Edith, Woolnut and Eldred. So, mm. like, I don't really have a whole lot to say about Eldred. And, like, for me, the ra- the discussion points would kind of go from lowest to highest would be Eldred, Woolnut and Edith. Uh, so did you have anything you wanted to say about Eldred? Other than the fact that the first time I heard his name, all I heard in the back of my head was Eldred Muslim. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, Eldred is the... Like I said, we have the trusting and the mistrustful. Yeah. Eldred is the mistrustful all the fucking way. <laughs> oh, as I put out, he's a village skeptic and everyone loves the village skeptic, right? Right? That man wouldn't trust his own fucking shadow. Like. No. It's a, it's a great day. What's so great about it? Oh, for fuck's sake, Eldred. Just... <laughs> That's all I really have to say about him. He's just an incredibly distrustful person. Yeah. I'm, I'm the same. It's just like, okay cool we get it you're a bit of an asshole but fire and move on um Woolnut though I like uh, I, I do like him because he seems very determined and driven I suppose that's what that's what makes him like the village headman those kind of qualities 
Yeah, I think Ronald is a very good leader. He has, ironically, he has the trusting side that's missing from Eldred. Yeah. But he also tempers it. He's not blindly trusting, do you know? Mm-hmm. He clearly cares a lot about people, and I think he's a very strong, intelligent leader. I think he's. I think he was done really well. Um, actually, just the way you're speaking there, do you know what kind of reminds me of? Uh, First Elder and City Administrator from the Sense Rights. Yeah. yeah, yeah, actually, that that is a really good comparison to make. Uh, which I guess would make Edith uh, the second Elder. Yeah. Cause, but at the same time, she's a bit smarter and better. <laughs> yeah, Edith is Edith. Let's, yeah, let's leave Edith uh, be her own her own person. Yeah. Uh, one thing, one thing I will say, uh, will not though is, yeah, he makes a very good leader, but he has absolutely no fucking strategy whatsoever. It's like, okay, we're armed with sticks and pitchforks, and there's three heavily armed Vikings. What do we do? Just get them. Yeah, but in fairness, though, I mean, they're clearly like a farming community yeah. or something. Like he's a leader of a farming community. He's not a leader of an army. No. Um, the one thing that I I did, it was very, um, I think, it was very well done. It was very well acted was when he comes across Edith after she's being attacked mm-hmm. and well yes he runs off to go after the Vikings later on he is he seems so emotionally devastated at what happened to her yeah you know, like he just collapses on top of her and cries I thought that was very very well done and again it, it, it speaks to that character do you know that he is a very loving person who cares very deeply yeah i thought that was really well done definitely definitely so how about we move on to edith herself yeah so i i have down here that edith is a bit of a weird character because edith was the first person that i wrote down as this trusting and mistrustful like literally in the same fucking sentence do you know like here traveling doctor man have some mead wait why are you looking like literally in the same fucking sentence yeah. i was like dude pick pick a lane <laughs> and just stay in that lane or indicate if we're going to change lanes we'll just change mid-sentence on the other hand though she's clearly very strong in her own right like the fact that yeah. she's willing to defend her own home like that she mm-hmm. you know pinned the doctor to the door with the with the stick the fact that like she did you know leave her hut to face the vikings do you yeah. know she was willing to defend her own and she joined in the assault on the monastery like she didn't just stay home for that i, I think we might like how maybe we might have kind of tiptoed around the subject in that the way it's presented in the episode kind of in the recap is the vikings attack edith and they drag her back into the hut and the next as yeah. i said the next time we see her she's very catatonic implying that one thing has absolutely as has happened Ne- never, never stated. I wasn't intentionally tiptoeing around it, but I wanted to leave it be its own point, which is why yeah. I hadn't mentioned it. Okay, yeah, yeah. So Edith gets raped. Yeah, which, like, I messaged you after I watched this, and I had to go back and watch that scene a couple of times. It's actually quite rough to do, I'll be mm. honest, because you had kind of warned me it was coming up, mm-hmm. and. I watched the scene, but when Woolnoth finds her, I thought Edith was dead because she was not moving. And then obviously she starts speaking later. I was like, oh, okay. And then I started going through my mind of like, oh, oh, okay. And I, I was trying to ask myself like, am I just inferring something 
that isn't there or is that what they were actually meaning to imply Joe and you and I had this discussion uh, via messenger at the time because you know when I'm doing the trivia and stuff I do look up different websites and stuff and most summaries of the story don't mention that fact you know they mention Edith is attacked by the Vikings and then they take all her shit and leave um but if you look up this is a fucking distressing thing if you look up Doctor Who rape which is a interesting mm-hmm. keyword to search this story is mentioned a lot yeah clearly whether it was intended or not and you know from our discussion offline i think it definitely was intended they picked a particular direction to go with the vikings and edith being raped was the was the culmination of that and like it kind of just before we go on any further with this, I just kind of, uh, with Edith, Edith is an incredibly strong character, as we kind of said, in the sense of she rallies quickly after it, and she focuses all her pain and her anguish and all her rage, and she focuses it into helping Woolnut lead the raid on the monastery, helping the Doctor, Vicky and Stephen get out, helping the guys get rid of the Vikings that did this to her. Yeah. Uh, and again it's an incredibly strong thing because she could have remained in that catatonic state for the entirety of the remaining episodes but I suppose in a very like a lot of those kind of uh, revenge movies she rallies and she becomes a a determined driving force against her attackers but one thing I read when I was trying to look up about this is that there's a scene when Ulf and Sven are killed at the end that uh, they had to edit it out due to the violence of the attack yeah and I, I remember just kind of thinking that going right that's okay you can edit that part and you make a note of it but then you have the whole thing you have the thing with Edith being raped but it's never mentioned in any summaries it's never mentioned in any trivia notes or anything like that so I'm just wondering the, menta- the, the mentality behind that which is and at, at this point in time like it's still meant to be a it's, it's, not, it's not a children's show it's a drama show isn't it I no, it's f- produced by drama. Yeah, but it's but it's a children's program. Yeah, so to present that, like, can you imagine being in the room and you're uh, as an adult and your child asks you what's wrong with Edith? It's like it's a very kind of pause and have to think of an excuse moment. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, to be honest, the best thing to do would have just been not have it happen. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Like, that would have been the, the best course of action. Because I don't know how you would explain it. Hmm. Um, for a program that was watched by the entire family. Yeah. Do you know, I don't know how you would explain that. I think, you know, Woolnut's reaction is probably the best reaction to it. You know, the most honest, the most real reaction. Um, because clearly he understood what, what happened. Do you know? Yeah. But it really, it really bothered me that like the doctor didn't say anything, yeah. or even notice. Like I mean, the fact that like all the men have gone off, and she's just been sat there crying. Like she's still crying when the doctor comes up, and the fact that he's just prattling on about herself, and she's still trying to help him, which is just like she's such a really strong character and. I, I do think you know, the bit at the end, like the assault on the monastery, I think that was a very cathartic experience for her. Big time. Um, but I think I think it was 
massively mishandled in the sense that it wasn't handled at all. Yeah, like it's. I, I feel like that more like there because again on the trivia sites that I've seen, uh, just to kind of, especially on the missing episodes when I do the recaps for them, uh, to corroborate, uh, what's going on, like. I was a bit kind of just taken aback by this, how this wasn't referenced or how there didn't seem to be any notification, like indications of was there viewer outrage or was there pushback on the plot point by the editors or anything like that. So, yeah, the one thing I would say is like from, from my looking it up, it seems that most of the outrage came after. Yeah. You know, you know, the world of the internet, right? Mm-hmm. Connecting everyone together and everyone kind of going, hold on that was what they meant to yeah. imply i thought it was just me like i thought i was the only one who read it that way um because like i said if you look at like sexual assault and doctor who and stuff like that this is the this one comes up yeah and like like we've what is it now we've had three four like we've, i think it was like we've had five instances of where a companion like so barbara specifically has been placed in a scenario that could be deemed as a precursor to a sexual assault and now we finally have it and it, it, it's like when you watch when you go as we made up the point like when you go back and you watch it like continually in sequence like there's a lot of stuff there that you missed the first time around and it might just be because we're, we're watching this and we're, we're like we're not harshly judging it with a modern mindset but with a modern mindset we're able to pick up on different things yeah, we're being a, a bit more critical than we maybe were the first time we were watching. Because obviously we want to have this discussion. Yeah. Um, but I had never seen this story before. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you had mentioned to me, you had warned me, because I have said previously how I hate discussing this topic. Yeah. You had warned me that, you know, all the implications with Barbara were bad, but that there would be something that would be way worse coming. Um, But you didn't tell me when. And I wasn't really expected to be in the first episode I hadn't seen. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, look, let, let's move move on to our villains. Yeah. Um, and we'll discuss the Vikings first, just carry over this conversation a little bit. Honestly, I think the Vikings were a bit shit. Not only was the decision to, prepare, to portray them as the like rapers, pillagers, plunders, not only was that, I think, in bad taste, but I think they were just badly written in general. I I thought they were a bit silly. Do, like, do you know what they kind of reminded me of? Because there's clearly a brains and bronze relationship between El- uh, Elf, Ulf, uh, Ulf is in two mime, uh, uh, and Sven. A uh, bit, bit of humour after what we just discussed. Um, in that, do you know what they kind of reminded me of? They reminded me of like a, like a thick version of Thor and Loki. It's like kind of like yeah, you know, yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah just like that. you know, dumb and dumb and dumber that type of thing. But like the fact that there's only kind of two of them, as I would have liked to have seen like a, a few more of them, like in the group, and because like as you kind of made the point, like that the 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 the, the Saxons uh, we've seen are like they're a farming community, so obviously if you had comparable numbers, it would be complete you know slaughter, but. When it comes to a lot of, like, say, these type of characters, you kind of have to compare them against Tagana from Marco Polo. Mm. And they don't seem anywhere near as competent or as intimidating as Tagana was. No. 
or even El Akir from the Crusade, you know, who had his incompetent moments. Yeah. And who had a similar, you know, uncomfortable thing with women. I'll put that yeah. way. Yeah. He, his portrayal was much more well-rounded than this. Yeah. Or even no, Ixta. What I would say is that like the Vikings are the secondary villain of the story. So maybe yeah, just, that played uh, into it. Yeah, so my final note on the Vikings are basically they're a fucking bunch of bastards. <laughs> and how will we now segue into the monk? The monk? Who? Okay, right. So, I've said before, I hadn't watched this story before. Right? We're into yeah. uncharted territory for me for the next um, doctor in a bit. <laughs> is, it, is it safe to say that War Games is probably the, the next... Yeah. Yeah, so the final story of Patrick Troughton, the next Doctor's run, is where we enter familiar territory for you again. <laughs> yeah, um, I I know I know it's terrible, but I I really I, I I'm a companion based viewer, and so when Ian and Barbara left, I stopped watching it. Um, and that's just the way I watched it before. Anyway, I'm not, I'm now just thinking about like, the amount of time that you're going to be like laughing when you hear new jokes for the first time. <laughs> So many of what you say, so much yeah. of what you say will make more sense. <laughs> um, <laughs> but the thing with the monk is, you know, most Doctor Who fans who have any interest in the classic show or who like who you know, talk on discussion boards have heard of the meddling monk. I thought his title was the meddling monk. I didn't realize he was just the monk in the story, the time meddler. <laughs> <laughs> I felt so stupid when I was writing my notes. I was like, oh. <laughs> he's just the monk and in the credits he's just credited as the monk and I was like oh okay <laughs> why do pe- why are people so mistrustful of me maybe I should change my name <laughs> yeah having meddler in my name is very bad anyway I do think the monk is a very interesting character oh absolutely at this point in the timeline he's only the third member of the doctor species we have met and he is nothing like Susan or the doctor and like the one thing I have to wonder, right, is okay. So, Susan Foreman is it's an it's an alias. Yeah. No, we don't know how much of that name is an alias in the sense of because like, you know obviously because she got the name Foreman from I am Foreman Scrapyard where they were stay where the Tardis was parked. Mm. But like again, was Susan is Susan her actual name, or do all members of the Doctor's race have a definitive article name? The Monk, the Doctor, the many people that we're going to be meeting down the line. <laughs> so I've actually been thinking about this, right? So mm-hmm. I think Susan is her actual name mm-hmm. because the doctor continues to call her Susan. <laughs> he wouldn't do that if that wasn't her fucking name. Um, <laughs> but it's, just, it's, just, it's just like kind of funny, like, you know, because all the alien planets they've visited, they've all had like very, you know, exotic names and then it's just like you know like what planet do you come from uh you know i come from another galaxy what's your name susan yeah but it's probably spelt like you know s-u-e <laughs> it's probably like spelt the way you spell it in irish or something so like it's kind of like in uh star trek you know when you've got like uh the klingon homeworld it's you know chronos but it's spelled q apostrophe <laughs> it's yeah. like okay um but i was actually thinking about this recently right because again i was thinking about the monk and the meddling monk whatever and because I love Ian and Barbara so very much so the doctor Susan says that her her grandfather is a doctor yeah when we first meet her and Ian refers to him as Dr. Foreman 
And he's like, Doctor Who, what are you on about? And then from that point afterwards, Ian and Barbara introduce him as the Doctor and refer to him as Doctor. I'm like, so did Ian and Barbara give the Doctor his name? Like, Susan says he's a Doctor and we can tell he's a scientist. Mm. I'm like, so his definitive article name, did, did Ian and Barbara give him his name? Like, did he just not want to tell them his real name and so he adopted the name they gave him? <laughs> What's your name? Jimmy Jojo Jr. Shabadoo? <laughs> Doctor it is then. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so. Um, but yeah, so like, you know, jumping the timeline a bit, we know that the word the comes up a bit when it comes to yeah. people of the Doctor species, but not all of them. No. So, you know, I think some of them do have normal names. Yeah, uh, I think maybe just some of them like to take on a what was it, like a subriquet. Is that the word? That's a very fancy word, buddy. I, I know. If that's the word you mean. <laughs> I, I think it's like a, like just a, a titled name. Yeah, I wonder if it's just the renegades though. Possibly. So that they can't use their original name anymore because they come for a new one. Maybe. Anyway, back to the monk. We went off yes. a tangent there. Yeah. Back to the monk. <laughs> He's a very intelligent man. He can set up a good ruse. You know, give mm-hmm. himself a base to work from. The thing I love about him, though, yeah, he has a to-do list. You gotta <laughs> love a man with a list, and not just any to-do list. It's a massive fucking A3 sheet of paper with check boxes on it. Yeah, like I mean, I I love a good list. You know, anyone who works with me will tell you I love a good list. So you know, take off the box on that one for him because that was great. Also, <laughs> he makes a nice breakfast. Yeah. You know, he made fried eggs and tea and toast. <laughs> to- toast. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this, this, this captivity lark isn't so bad. <laughs> I get toast. <laughs> oh, this episode's going to be such a bitch to edit. <laughs> That's going to leave all this laughing in. I'm sorry to yeah. our listeners, but I'm, I, it's going to be too hard for me to edit all this out. <laughs> oh. uh, or like oh. our listeners in other countries be like, what the fuck are they talking about? Yeah. The one the, the one thing I do have noted from here, and again, this is something I messaged you about afterwards. When he sat atop the cliff. Yeah. I, I messaged you saying, was he sniffing cocaine? <laughs> Like, what the hell was that? But no, Paddy said it was probably snuff, which makes a lot more sense. Yeah, I was like, I love that your mind first went to cocaine. Well, in fairness, how often in modern day do you see people using snuff anymore? Um, Mostly people that, you know, try to look cool and old people that need a good sneeze. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I think, I think he was an interesting character. What did you think of the monk? I think he's really interesting. Uh, he's like he's a very slippery customer, and but at the same time, you never really believe that he's helpless. Like he like when he gets caught, he puts up this whole kind of almost Scooby Doo esque villain type thing. I would have gotten away with it too type thing, but he always manages to get away. And even when he's caught, you're like, ah, he's going to like he there he's going to do something that will just fuck everything up, and mm. it's. It's, it's almost like reading a Stephen King book with him it's like you know like oh they're safe no they're not but wait they are oh no they're not god damn it one thing that I did find kind of interesting about him is that I was completely unable to tell if he's genuine in his altruism 
you know i'm trying to make the, the humanity better and it's like i don't i honestly don't know if you are or not no like, i've compared the doctor to loki in the past yeah like the early doctor to loki in terms of his mischievousness no the monk is loki he, he's doing this because it's fun and actually uh this is kind of weird because in my notes i make a reference to a line from the avengers like you know that oh the earth is ready for a higher form of war uh because by bringing in the um you know he he's trying to say like that oh i'm I, i'm trying to save uh europe and therefore the world all, all the suffering that they're going to suffer uh, suffer that they're going to have now because of william's conquest and i was like eh, that's kind of interesting yeah, I, I sort of see it that like, he wants to be God of his own little planet. Mm. Yeah. But it's just like, oh, God. And the thing is, I love uh, Peter Butterworth. Um, every time I t- say his name, I want to eat a sandwich. <laughs> um, but no, I, I, you see, the thing is, I've, I saw him in the Carry On movies before I ever saw Doctor Who. And he's in one of my favourite Carry On movies, which uh, is Carrying Up the Kyber. He's brilliant in that. And... Like, so he, I've always ever known him from a comedic standpoint and then when he came into Doctor Who I'm glad that he actually kind of kept that comedic uh, side of things with him but at the same time presenting it in a villain uh, I, I would say villain yeah, yeah. that um, like is very endearing like you're kind of like oh, that you know almost lovable rascal oh wait no what's he doing stop him stop him for the love of God stop him yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, but I will say, like, it's a testament to the writing of this story. Well, most of the writing of this story. And his acting. Like, that the characters have become so popular in the expanded uh, universe, you know? Oh, definitely. Or definitely. universe, as uh, the term should be. <laughs> the term is, I believe. <laughs> but like, one thing I would like, I, I'm curious to know that, like, obviously, you know, jumping the timeline, we know the doctors will change appearances and they'll change their dress style. Yeah. Is the monk just going to be the monk forevermore? <laughs> well, we don't know because he never actually said his name. Yeah, he's just in the guise of a monk. He's just although, in the guise of a monk doing monkey al- stuff. Although I can just imagine like you know, like one monk that just has like an affinity for like you know uh, kilts, so like his habit is just sort of like tapered off at the knees. <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> fun times. Yeah. An interesting character. It'll be interesting if we see him again. Absolutely. Like, but it gets thing. It's almost like he's the genie. He's got phenomenal cosmic power, but he's got a teeny little living space. <laughs> oh. So that was an interesting and laughter-filled character discussion i think we've probably laughed more in this episode than we have in any other but now we're on to the important question patty how would you rate this story as a whole cool so overall i'm going to give this story a four out of five i really enjoyed it i thought the the monk was a great villain uh i love the historical stories and even the pseudo historical stories um they're really cool uh, because they always give us such interesting characters that you know you kind of want to see what their own storyline is apart from the main storyline. Mm. There's two really intense moments in this story as well that add to the overall drama of it, and that's 
the the rape of Edith, and then the the killing of Sven and Ulf, and it's the it's just like how as a, it was poor the rape of Edith is poorly handled in terms of the portrayal of the after effects of it. Yeah, but the 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 anger and fury of the characters involved, and Sven and Ulf gain their comeuppance like it's it can't help but just draw you in and you're like Jesus that's intense and um, the sh- like the show can sometimes you know be it handles the balance of like you know harrowing scenes and you know lighthearted drama or lighthearted fun at the same time like now sometimes like you'll have stories where it's one or the other other times they mesh the two stories together and unfortunately, I think this time they again with just the mishandling of the after effects of Edith's rape, it it that that's why it loses the point in my regard in that capacity is that I think that was poorly handled. Yeah, I would agree with you on the handling of that particular story point. I think it was, I think it was brave to include it, but then there was no follow through on it. So why even bother? In terms of my thoughts on the story as a whole, so you and I joked (laughs) (laughs) that I would give this story a zero because Ian and Barbara aren't in it. Yes. I think given the absolute hysterical laughter fit I had before it even clicked play, that's being a bit disingenuous. (laughs) (laughs) So before I even clicked play, we knew that we'd get at least a two because it made me laugh. In all seriousness, though, I don't. This is not a bad story to close out the season. No, it's not. It left us with some answers and even more questions about the Doctor and where he came from. The monk was an interesting character. I do wonder if we'll see him crop up again. You know, we had you know the introduction of Stephen again. There were certain things I didn't like about Stephen in this story. Um, I think. You know, I, I I naturally compare him to Ian, which maybe I shouldn't do. But, you know, it was the same thing when Vicky first came in. You sort of naturally compared her to Susan. You're going to naturally compare the next companion to the companion that went before. And yeah. Stephen is much more of a, you know, comparison with Ian than he will be a comparison with Barbara, for example. Oh, definitely. So I think... Stephen will be an interesting character. There were bits about him that I liked. There were a lot of bits about him I didn't like. But I'm interesting to see how he'll grow and evolve and like deal with you know the amount of time that he was alone. And I did want to. I was surprised he didn't mention the fact that he like as far as the doctor and Vicky were concerned, Stephen was dead and they left him for dead. Um, I was surprised that didn't come up. <laughs> <laughs> Bastards. Um. However, the downsides of the story for me, I'll be honest, and I know that we said that, like, oh, they were villagers attacking Vikings, but the fighting was a bit crap. Yeah. Compared to what we've seen before, you know, I think the fighting was a bit crap in this. And I think the Saxons and the Vikings, they weren't characterized very well. Um, But then again... I don't think they were meant to be the focus. The focus was meant to be the monk, who was characterised very well. And the rape bit. Okay, can we seriously stop with the sexual assault in Doctor Who, please? It's only been two seasons. 
and we've now discussed it, what, six times? About that, I think. Yeah, this is episode 17. So, you know, that's almost a third of the episodes we've had to have this discussion. And I don't want to have it again. <laughs> yeah, like I, I'm not. I'm trying to remember now if it comes up uh, again. Uh, honestly speaking, it probably will. But I, but from my own recollection, it doesn't get as bad as this. Okay, that's good. So, overall, like I said, good closeout for the season. Monk was really interesting. Interesting questions. Interesting answers. Couple of bad bits I didn't like, but I agree with you. I think this is a a nice solid four. We're back on the same scoring page again. We are, we are. We've been off that page for a while, but we're back on it again. <laughs> um, no, I think it's a nice solid four for me. I think there's something in the story for everyone. And I think the bits that they didn't do well, it didn't take from the story, except for the rape bit. And that's where I lost a point, to be honest. Everything yeah. else I would have been able to get over and I probably wouldn't have docked points for it. But the rape bit, I, I, I had to dock a point for that. It, it, again, it's it's just down to the poor handling of the scenario. Yeah. Cool. So I think is that it for the time meddler and for season two? It is. We have come to the end of season two. We have said goodbye to Susan, to Barbara, and to Ian, but we've also welcomed on board the TARDIS, Vicky and Stephen. <laughs> goodbye. I know, I'm so <laughs> devastated. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but like there are, it's. The nature of the show is that it keeps evolving with these new characters and we also get to see new like we get to see new ways that people react to traveling through time and space and again like the writing will definitely prove that yeah so next week uh we will be joining the doctor vicky and steven as they take a trip in galaxy four bye-bye bye, -bye. bye.